All right. When we finished up, when we finished up last time, they had just thrown the T overboard. Okay. And so you've got this this problem with they've lost the T. Okay. So there's that loss, and then then also they lost the taxes. And there are various vessels sitting in the harbor that won't unload. Okay, because they can't get dock workers to unload them. And so you can't collect tax until the T is on the dock. All right? So th this deal of throwing the T overboard, although it wasn't, a, you know, we, as we watched in the little, little video, it was like kind of ploop, ploop, you know, just threw it out there and they all went home. Okay? Well, the result of that is the folks over in Parliament said, this isn't going well. We, we're going to take care of this. So they put together this stuff that it, some places it's called the Intolerable Acts, other places the Cohesive Acts, okay? But it imposed on Massachusetts the, these five different elements in an attempt to get the tax and to recoup money for the loss of the tea. So I want to look briefly at each of these five because uh, they work, if you're watching the timeline, we're coming down to the end here, okay? Oh, and, and things get pick up speed here, okay? So the first one on my list is, is the Boston Port Act. This is part of that cohesive acts, but the majority of commerce going on in, in the colonies comes through the Boston Harbor, okay? And so they close the harbor down so you can't bring anything in or out of here because we want to get paid for the tea. So now you've got a lot of people out of work and a lot of product that, that's not getting in and out. Then at the same time, the, the, all these came in one big chunk, thing called the Massachusetts Government Act. Now they suspend the Charter of Massachusetts, okay? And now it becomes under the control of the king. So now it's a royal colony now, okay? And all positions are appointed by the governor, parliament, or the king. So the locals who have been appointing and electing people for over 100 years, they've said, no, you can't do that anymore. The king said it's going to be this way. And they limited town meetings to once a year. Now, these folks are used to meeting on a really regular basis, some of them every couple of weeks, but it depends on the issue. No cell phones, okay? no radio. So if there's an issue comes up, we need to deal with it, hold a town meeting. Okay? And, and decisions are made there and, and stuff implemented. Now, on top of that, there is the Administration of Justice Act. So in this one, the, the governor is now a royal governor, okay? And he says any time that there is a royal official that's charged with anything, that court appearance has to happen in Great Britain or, or somewhere, one of the other colonies, not in the colonies, but some other part that, that, that England owns, okay? And if you're a witness, you have to travel on your own expense. And the locals say, wait a minute, we have got a, a judicial system that's been here for 150 years, okay? And now you're telling us we can't use any of that, and, and the answer is that's right, okay? All your judicial system is done and over with. Uh, how did they um, implement it? Make sure that 
Oh, they have a hard time doing that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, remember the center of things are in Boston, and all this, this stuff is primarily focused at Boston. And, and this is this is to recover the cost, okay, and to get these people under control. Because as far as the king knows, it's, things are out of control there, okay, and it's it's going to ramp up. It's going to get worse, okay. So the, the redcoats are going to enforce this stuff. So you can see we're in the third piece of this. Now the other one is called the Quartering Act. Remember there was an earlier Quartering Act. This one, uh, the stuff I read said, well, they were afraid that they would require put officers and, and soldiers in their homes. Well, they, they did that. Okay? It wasn't just an option. Okay? And as John pointed out last time, not only that, but you had to take care of their laundry. Okay, make sure they were able to bathe, feed them, okay? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Then, then the final blow here was called the Quebec Act. They set up the British government authority now in Quebec. Remember, they got Quebec, Quebec as a part of the French and Indian War, got that from, from France. And they extended the boundaries of Quebec. Now, here's Quebec was up in here. Okay, now it runs down all of this area. So this is a process of stopping any kind of advancement to the west. Okay, because if you move out here, now you're under the the Canadian control, which is also British. Okay. So, you know, this stuff is you're just taking one hit on top of another. Okay. Now, to make it worse, there's a guy by the name of Lord North. He's, in the, he's over in England, okay? And he's the prime minister over there, and he appoints General Gage as governor of Massachusetts. Now, previously, the governors had been elected and approved by the king, but elected locally. It's like, no, we're not doing that. We've got you a new governor, okay? And he starts in on April 2 of 1774. First thing it does is dissolve the provincial assembly. Okay? It's not only not only do you not have a position, you've got no place to meet, you have no authority, you're done, go go home. Okay? And if you want to have a town meeting, it's once a year, and, and this is not the year. All the members of the governor's council are no longer elected. They're appointed now by the king, or by the Board of Trade, most likely. So then Colonel North has directed, excuse me, Lord North directed the General Gage to take whatever action was necessary to control the colonies. And one of the things he started in right away in September, remember he went in in April, now he's been there for a few months, and in September he said, all right, I got it. First thing we're going to do is seize all of their munitions and any supplies that they have that have to do, do with munitions, okay? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Okay. All right. So he's under charge, the, the general is, to deal with this rebellion, and one of the deals is required everyone in Boston who had a firearm to surrender it to the army. Wonder why we have a Second Amendment? 
okay? Not just the militia, not just members of the militia, but everybody who had a firearm that lived in Boston was required to surrender their firearm and the munitions they had that went with it, okay? And not, not everybody, okay? I mean, oh. There, there, were, there were people who lost their lives over that issue. Okay? All right. Yeah. yeah. So, so Boston is pretty well being controlled by the Redcoats. So a huge army in Boston. Remember, this is the center of activity. Okay? And so Gage is charged with getting this group under control that's there. So we've, we've, got, we've got Adams and his Sons of Liberty. We've got pastors that are not agreeing with them. We've got people going to take your firearms. And there's, you know, we, we've, had the, we've had the problem already where you know, we got, people got shot in Boston. And we, you know, we've got, got all that stuff going on. So now things are kind of getting out of control. And so Gage says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 700 men and I'm going to march to Concord to capture the, the, the powder and munitions they had there because they had a couple of cannons. They were, they were in, in Concord. And, and he's told, by the way, on your way up there, stop in Lexington and arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Okay? Because they're, they're staying with one of Hancock's relatives in Lexington. All right? So I. I want to be careful here. The stuff I've read, this number of 700 ranges somewhere between 500 and 1,200 people. I mean, there's nobody out there taking head count, but it was a large group. April 19, 1775. After midnight. See, the, the sound wasn't loud enough for me, but I'm, even though I got my hearing aids in. April 19th, 1775. After midnight, 900 redcoats leave their barracks in Boston for Lexington and Concord, about 20 miles away. Their orders arrest the rebel leaders and seize their weapons. News of the British attack also reaches Paul Revere. His midnight ride will alert local militias. Revere rides ahead of the British troops. His warning spreads from town to town across the New England countryside. Paul Revere reaches Lexington in time to spread the word. The British are coming. We need to warn the militia. Get them together. Come on. By five in the morning, 60 militiamen line up. They're commanded by a farmer. John Parker. They're faced off against hundreds of well-armed and highly experienced British soldiers. 
What happens next will transform the world forever. Sunrise, April 19, 1775. On one side, 60 men, poorly armed and barely trained. On the other, hundreds of the most powerful army in the world. Men who have only been active for a handful of months versus an army that in the past 20 years has fought on five continents and defeated everything in its path. For these rebels, the fight is for nothing less than freedom itself. The Lexington militia gathers on the village common, dairy farmers and shopkeepers. But also among them are free African-Americans and slaves. African-Americans like Prince Estabrook. Captain John Parker once fought on the side of the British. A quarter of the men standing at his side are related to him. No one knows who fires the first shot at Lexington. But it's the shot heard round the world. Prince Estabrook is hit in the first volley. No army in the world can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British, let alone a ragtag militia. The British fired up to four times the rate of the militia. Within minutes of the first shots fired at Lexington, eight patriots are dead, ten wounded. The American Revolution has begun. The Redcoats reach Concord at nine in the morning. Acting on a tip-off from colonists loyal to the Crown, they raid the militia's arms stash. But the rebels have got their first. Hiding almost everything. They continue to search for weapons, giving the Patriots more time to spread the word. 
the militia gathers just outside the town of Concord. By late morning, more than a thousand have arrived from the surrounding villages. Their plan, to defend their towns against the British. British soldiers left their barracks 15 hours ago. And now, they face a 20-mile march back to Boston. Shattered lives an occupied city. Blood in the streets of Boston. And now, Lexington. A people unified in the fight against tyranny. Now, the Patriots have their chance. Gunsmith and militia leader Isaac Davis takes a bullet through the heart. Patriots seize the upper hand and intend to make the British soldiers pay. They shadow the Redcoats' march, firing on them the entire way. A third are killed or wounded. Seven generations after the first settlers left England, search of prosperity and freedom. Their descendants will have to fight for these rights. They were right here, okay? And this, this is the British march. Uh, one of by land, two of by sea, okay? Remember that deal with, you know, Paul Revere's ride? You know? Well, here's part of the problem, is Boston is, is surrounded by water. There's one path out of Boston on a road. So if you're gonna try to move a large army, you'll have to march them through this narrow path here, okay? And then, they have to come clear around and get here and then march up this 20-some miles. Or you can take them across to, 
to Charleston and then, then march them. And that's what they did. Okay? So here, here is Lexington. This is, where, this is where the village green is at. This is where the first battle. And, and there's no, nothing happened between here and here. Then, except that they were trying to get Adams and Hamilton, and, and, and they, they escaped. Okay? So they went on up here. This is where the store was of all of the, the munitions. And they got there, and of course it's gone. And they're, they burned barns, burned houses. Any place that they thought or had been told this stuff had been stored, they just burnt the building. So now they're headed back. Remember, they left down here at midnight. Okay? They've been up. They probably hadn't been to bed. Okay? Been up all day. They left there at midnight, crossed, and they marched all the way up here. And by this time, there's over a thousand militia have been called from, as John pointed out, as far away as 20 or 30 miles. And so they, they just beat them to, to pieces all the way back. So here's a little more <coughs> excuse me, detail of this. Okay? So this is the path going back. And they just you know, bloodied them all the way back here. They followed them clear down to the harbor. Okay? And, and later we'll talk about how many were lost and that. But, but the British suffered tremendously on the way back. I mean, there were very few militia that got harmed on the, on the route back because they, they fought the Indian style. They just shot them from the, from the trees and the brush. Um, I mean, they should have known better, the militia did, to try to stand against the British Army in a volley. I mean, it's, as the narrator pointed out, they were, the British were able to reload four times faster than militia. And they had this down to a fine science. They actually lined up one group behind another, and you've got a group that shoots. Now they squat down and reload, and people behind them, then another volley. Okay? And, and theoretically, by the time this volley gets over, these people are going to squat down, okay? and these people stand back up. Okay? So it's, I mean, they got this figured out. Okay? Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll later we'll talk about Paul Revere's ride and that, that whole whole piece because that gets that's getting gets interesting because there were uh, there was at least three riders and and some authors say five. Okay. So so we have this battle that's gone on all the way back here. You know it's. It's obvious war is declared, okay? I mean, there's, there's no getting out of this. So now we have in May, May of 1775, the Second Continental Congress meets, and they, they organize to raise funds for, for a Continental Army, and they appoint George Washington as the head, okay? Before that, it was just militias. We didn't have a Continental Army until this point in time. So they got the army together, and, and one of their first things they want to do is they want to, to take care of the people who are in Boston. Because Boston is surrounded by the British. It, it's under siege. And so the militia said, we're going to march down to Boston and defend it. Okay, Because so, they knew that, that 
the British planned to attack the Americans on the heights as they approached Boston. They, they had that information. They will meet on a hill in Charleston that is now called Bunker Hill. It wasn't called Bunker Hill at the time, but it has been ever, ever since. So you got, got the general, oh, I can't tell you his last name, I was wrong, with 2,400, the commander-in-chief lieutenant under General Thomas Gage with 3,000 British. So it pretty evenly matched, 2,400 to 3,000. So let, let's do this little video blip here, okay? Not great to the best of sound. After the Lexington Alarm of April 19, 1775, 20,000 militiamen and Minutemen groups from across all of New England converged on Massachusetts and Boston in particular. They were outraged, they were angry, and they bottled up the British inside the city. By the middle of June, their numbers had swollen to the point that General Thomas Gage was concerned about their presence outside of the city. They were led by General Artemis Ward, who was head of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, who on the night of June 15th and 16th ordered his forces forward to this position on Breed's Hill, which we erroneously call Bunker's Hill. His men erected a fortification on this hill that in the morning when the British woke up, looked out, were stunned, and knew something had to be done. After a council of war with his subordinates, William Howe, Henry Clinton, and John Burgoyne, General Thomas Gage made a decision. He was going to attack the American position located on Breed's Hill. And on the afternoon of June 17, 1775, which was an incredibly hot and humid day, Thousands of British grenadiers and regulars embarked across Boston Harbor, disembarked on the shores of Charlestown, and began to assault the American positions here at Bunker Hill. Led by the courageous General William Howe, the British marched off in cadence to drumbeats and assaulted the American position. Thousands of British grenadiers and regulars massed in formation at the bottom of this hill. Inside the American fort, American militiamen trained their eyes and they knew the big fight was coming. They could see the green, gleaming bayonets, they could see the red coats. Allegedly, Colonel William Prescott, one of the defenders inside the fort, ordered his men to not fire until they saw the whites of their eyes. The British marched up in cadence, step by step, inch by inch. They got closer and closer and closer. And when they got within musket range, the Americans issued a withering volley that dropped the British in their ranks in their place, and they retreated back to where they started. Once more, the British marched up the hill. Again, this time, stepping over dead and wounded comrades, they made their assault on the American position. And once again, the Americans fired a withering volley into their ranks. The British once more retreated to their original lines. Finally, on a third assault, again marching over their dead and dying comrades, the British were able to penetrate the American forces, and a severe and fierce firefight broke out inside the fortification. Inside the fortification were several African Americans, including Peter Salem, who saw an officer. He drew a bead on the officer, fired his gun, and took down Major John Pitcairn, who had gained infamy during the battles of Lexington and Concord. The Americans broke and ran, but not because they were afraid, but because they had run out of powder and shot. The British won the field, but as Henry Clinton had said, it was a dear-bought victory. After the Battle of Bunker Hill, reconciliation between the American colonies and Great Britain was no longer possible. Benjamin Franklin wrote a friend in England, we were once friends, we are now enemies. The war had taken a fateful turn.
So, so look at the look at the time frame. April, middle of April, got the Concord and Lexington, right? The next month, Continental Congress meets. Now it's in June. We're, we're two months here. Okay. The the Americans, the colonists, are now surrounding Boston because that's where the redcoats are at. Okay. And there's some stuff I read today. They believed if they could could, could wipe out the, the mass that was at Boston, if they could, could beat that group and get them to surrender, that would be the end. Okay? And they were probably correct. Had, had they had enough munitions and enough manpower, they probably could have done it. Okay? Uh, maybe. I mean, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but this was a Hail Mary move on the part of the colonists. Okay? And they, they might have been able to to hold their ground if they hadn't run out of munitions. But they just ran out of, of powder and lead and had to skedaddle. Okay. So here's the casualties. British lost 1,000. Americans lost 400 at Bunker Hill. Okay. That's not good odds. Okay. <laughs> So one of, one of the old the songs that I picked up on, I don't know, way back in the 60s, came from this period of time. And I'm going to play a piece of it. This is the Limelighters doing this. Okay? We'll sing out a song that we got along far away, my son. Please try to understand why I'm leaving you so sad like the wind. 1776, men came from all of the 13 colonies to fight for General Washington. Many times, the only things they had in common were the songs they sang and the cause for which they fought. When brother died at Bunker Hill, my mother said to me, take your gun and join the men who fight for liberty. Here I sit waiting for another British raid. I'll drink my barley whiskey and pretend I'm not afraid. We'll sing another song when we gotta move along far away, my son. Please try to understand why I'm leaving you so sad. Like the wind, we're headed for the hill. No one ever told me where to call my home. When I was just a little lad, I began to roam. Then I heard the musket fire ringing loud and clear. Saw the redcoats up near Terrytown. Well, I had to volunteer. So the song was written sometime you know, later, later in the war. Okay? And I just, uh, the uh, lyrics that I've looked at that they say are some of the originals are close to this. I mean, nobody except maybe two of you probably remember the limelighters. Okay? So now we're in July, okay? We're, we're in the middle of June at Bunker Hill. Now we're in July, okay? The, the colonists, some of them have said, we really see if we can solve this. Because remember, about a third of the population were happy to be British citizens, wanted to be British citizens. 
There were about a third of the population who were opposed to the British occupation. There's about a third who just wanted everybody to leave them alone. Okay? Yeah. So, so the part of the deal is rather than us spilling more blood, let's see if we can't get the king to back off here. Can, can we make an agreement? So they put together what's called the Olive Branch Petition. This was the Second Continental Congress, and it was an attempt to try to resolve their differences. They sent it to the king, and he essentially said, you know, don't, don't bother me with this stuff, okay? He declared them to be in rebellion, right? I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, my suspicion is that it was that Adams and Franklin were involved, but I, I, I just don't remember. Okay. So because the king said, I don't want anything to do with you, now they're stuck with, what do we do? And so they came up with a declaration of cause of taking up arms against England, okay? And the, the quote that you see over and over is, they were resolved to die free men rather than slaves. And the, the two who were charged with putting this together was Dickinson and Jefferson, okay? Because they were members of the Second Continental Congress, okay? And we don't hear a lot about some of these, I call them somewhat minor players like Dickinson, but he was, he was well educated. Okay? Some of these people that we see as minor players, I think, made a significant impact in terms of their writing capabilities. These are people who had read Locke, Socrates. I mean, these were well educated men. Okay? Yeah, to even attend, you had to be able to deal with, with Latin and Greek to, to get in, to start with, okay? And then we got, then we have common sense, you know, all put out by, by pain. This, sometimes I've read where people make this to be some large thing, okay? But it was a little 14-page pamphlet, okay? So this is the first time that somebody had published stuff that, that uh, historians say we're pretty much plain English, okay? And it, it spoke to the common, the, the common colonists about what were the things the British were doing and what were we about to lose? I mean, it's it, liberty and freedom were the foundation pieces and that's what was about, about to go away, okay? And the only way we're gonna keep this is we have to be independent of Great Britain. As long as we're British citizens, we'll be under the thumb of the king, okay? Now, we don't want to forget the clergy in this deal, because the, remember the Committee of Correspondence? That's the communication link between what's happening in Boston and what's, you know, what's going on out in the, other, in the colonies so that they're able to, to let people know what was happening. So there's the Committee of Correspondence sending stuff out to the pastors who are then able to deliver that information to their congregation. And the British 
labeled this group the Black Robe Regiment. And if you were a pastor and you were captured, you were treated more poorly than if you were an officer, okay? Because the, the British said, th th this is the foundation problem here. This is where the problem is. It's, it's with this group of, of pastors, okay? I thought I had Muhlenberg in here. What did I do with him? Maybe he comes up after this, huh? No? Oh, I know, he's in the neck. I've, I've looked at this stuff so many times, by the time I get here, it's like I don't remember what's in this lesson and what's in the next one. Right. All right, so looking at timelines, now we're down to July 4, 1776. Uh, adopt, the Declaration of Independence is adopted. Okay, we'll do a whole lesson on on the who all these people were that signed this thing and this process. So it, the delegates really didn't finish signing it until August the second because it took a long time for people to get there. So this is my conclusion. Okay, the attempt on the American colonies by the British Crown to control their activities, at the same time collect payments from them for the French and Indian War is viewed by the colonists as an infringement on their basic rights as British subjects, okay? We are British citizens. How dare you require us to pay for a war that you were involved in, okay? We didn't start the war, although they kind of did, okay? Uh, but it wasn't our red coat. You sent the army, okay? We, we don't want to take care of this, all right? So with the time left we've got today, I want to talk about pastors and the church, okay? And I haven't, I haven't selected everybody, I mean, because there was a lot involved, so I've, I've picked my favorite few here to talk about, okay? So we're still at the same point. We're trying to, to, to look at the influence of Christianity in the formation of America, and this is key because the church and the pastors was that foundation piece. So we're at lesson six out of nine, maybe. Okay? Depends on what happens. I mean, often there, there are Sundays that it's like, no, we're doing something else. So that, because we're coming into the holidays. And so oh, if Mike and Dee decide we're doing something else on Sunday, then you know, we'll do something else. Okay. So here's the objectives. We want to take a look at, at the Reverend Clark and his involvement in the early days of the revolution and the role of pastors in training the militia or even in their connection to the militia. So the influence of pastors in supporting the revolution, because that becomes a big deal. So the names of some key pastors that had significant influence on the development of our nation and the roles of pastors promoting Christian involvement in local government. Okay. How involved were the pastors in saying you ought to be involved in your local government? We're going to, the use of pastors in the Continental, by the Continental Congress in communicating to the people. And we've talked about that already. That, you know, that's a committee of correspondence. The role of pastors in the development of the constitutional form of our government. And we'll expound on that more when we get to the Constitution. 
and how pastors influence the public's worldview. It's one we usually don't look at, but I'm going to, I'm going to touch on that in here. So, well, we don't need the reality check here. Okay, so years later, John Adams had this to say about pastors. He said, most conspicuous, the most ardent and influential in the awakening of a revival of the American principles and feelings. Okay. My paraphrase of some of his other writings is he said, if it hadn't been for the pastors, we'd still be British citizens. Okay. So if you, if you want to study about this particular period of time, this is a book I've talked about previously. It's called New England Pulpit and the American Revolution. At the time, there were various pastors in New England that were writing back and forth to one another and visiting with one another, going, listen, what, what is our role? What, what's our role here in government? Okay? They wanted to understand the role of government as it pertained to Scripture. And what type of government does Scripture support? And there's one pastor that, that's mentioned in here that, that I get a kick out of his name of the is John Weiss. He's from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Okay? Uh, but he's, he's prominent in this. And there's, I don't know, there's over 100 pastors that are listed in, in this book. Okay? So th this is John Wise. Okay? Born in 1652, lived to 1725. So you'd think, well, how is that impacting the war? Well, it's his, his writings and the stuff that he did prior to this because remember, the, the war didn't spring up out of nowhere. Okay? These problems started in about 1750, but there were people trying to figure out before that, what is the role of the pastor and the church and the citizens relative to government? Not everybody, but there were a few people, and this is one of them. Okay? So he was the second pastor at the Chewbacca Church in Ipswich, was there till 1725 when he died. It's about 38 miles from Boston. He's said to be an intellectual thinker. He taught from the pulpit taxation without representation was tyranny and that the government needed the consent of the governed. Taught that from, from the pulpit. And this is, this is at the cemetery of, you know, where he's at. And there's another plaque that's going to show up here. So, here is Boston here, and Ipswich is up here in this little piece of land up here. Okay? So this is his house. Remember we talked about the salt box houses? Well, this is classic salt box house. Okay? Uh, it was erected in 1701. He built the house, probably with some help. Uh, down here it says he was a graduate army chaplain. He was at Harvard. He, he was a protestant. He protested against taxes without representation, and he was against the, the witchcraft delusion. Okay? So he was one of the outspoken critics of what was going on to try to identify what people were witches. Okay? Uh, that won him some favor, but not favor with everybody. Okay? So our status of the colonies after the French and Indian War and the Great Awakening it was these key pieces. And I know I've talked about these before, but, but these, I think, are, are important in trying to understand why they would rebel. Okay? 
they, they had learned that personal responsibility was their responsibility, that, that, that their salvation was a personal responsibility, okay, and not a responsibility of the church. They learned out of the war that they also had a responsibility to protect themselves. They figured out they were able to defend themselves. They, they formed these militias to help do that. They, they had been trained to fight as a group during the French and Indian War, okay? N not as great as, as the British Army, but this deal of, of you know, how, how do we come together as a group and get a leader that leads us to, to fight, okay? And they'd come to the conclusion that liberty and property ownership were, were important items. If we, if we lose our property rights and we lose our liberty, we've got nothing. So politically, here, the first Continental Congress happened in Carpenter's Hall, and this is a cute little drawing that I found at Carpenter's Hall, because it, it's not there now. Uh, it was in September and October of 1774. And then the second Continental Congress was in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, May of 1775. And I just w was talking to Kevin. He's been in this building, and I've been in this one. Have any of the rest of you been to this building? If, if, you, if you get to Philadelphia, it is really worth going to. Okay? Uh, it's well-preserved, and you will be, uh, I think, amazed, at least I was, how small it is. Okay? And we're going to put 50, 60 men in here for days at a time arguing. Okay? So they didn't have to have microphones. I mean, it's a pretty small, it's, oh, I don't think it's much bigger. It might not even be this big. Okay? It's, it's pretty, I'm sorry? They, no, they didn't. <laughs> Nobody taking pictures either. Yeah. All right, remember the Sons of Liberty as alive and well. They were started back in, in 65, okay? Uh, they're, they're primarily in Boston. Samuel Adams is, is leading this group, okay? Uh, and it's, it's the, the Sons of Liberty that are involved in the, the Paul Revere ride and, the, and the, the gathering the militia, okay? And, and that's the reason I've got the, the horsemen down here, okay? So this is what John mentioned previously about, about the militia. Every community had to have a militia. If the community was a certain size and depended upon the colony, how big the, the size had to be. So I, I left that out because it got too confusing. Most of them had rules, and I just picked one that I thought kind of was a good representation. So all able-bodied men between the ages of 18 and 45 had six months Okay, to buy themselves a musket, a bayonet, a belt, two spare flints, a cartridge box, and 24 bullets and a knapsack. Okay? That's not much. Okay? But these were expensive things to own. Okay? And not everybody had them at that time. But you have to have a militia. If you're in this age group, you've got to do it. And if you didn't do it, you get fined. Okay? So not very fancy weapons. These are all muzzle loaders, okay? Your pistols and long rifles and a few small cannons. Most of the cannons were left over from the French and Indian War. Okay? Ones that the British said, no, we don't need that anymore. Okay? So the Committee of Correspondence, Sons of Liberty, they're pretty well tied together here, okay? 
because in both cases you've got Sam Adams involved. Okay, he's in Boston, and some authors say that the the committee correspondence was made up of 21 men. As near as I can tell, it's a group of men in Boston that are writing the letters to send out because we didn't have mimeograph machines or no Xerox, right? So we, you know, we got some issues we want to do. Somebody would would dictate a letter, okay? And everybody would, you know, a bunch of them would write it down. I suspect it changed from person to person, okay? Get the essence down and send that out. So their job was preparing a series of reports outlining the colonists' rights and what Parliament was doing to infringe upon those rights, okay? So they started early. They started back in 72, okay? So they've been sending stuff out for a while. So the other piece we come back to that communication was to the churches. I mean, that's the, remember in small communities, the church is the center of things that go on. Send it to the pastor. Pastor would commonly say, I have a, a letter from the committee of correspondence after service. Those of you who want to, want to hear it, I'll read it after the service, and then I'll put it on the, on the board. Okay? So it usually wasn't part of the, of the, the message. So it was, it was expensive and difficult to get a sermon printed in this period of time. And we, and we have some record of sermons that were printed uh, where we can see a, a real impact that pastors and their sermons had on the worldview of, of their congregation. So see, these are some of the topics that I found in these three publications. Now, now this one's called Chaplains, and, and clergy and the revolution, it's 414 pa pages. It's a pretty thick book, okay? Uh, this one is only 13 sermons. This one only has nine, okay? And some of these are printed after the war, okay? But here are some of the topics that were in there. We've got elections, earthquakes, fires, salvation, government, liberty, taxes, capital punishment, proper, proper role of the military, and how to live a good everyday life. Yes. Yeah. Well, there were earthquakes in the world, okay? And so they would get information. I don't know if there was any earthquakes in New England or not, but yeah. But, but I, I, I've seen a couple of script, a couple of sermons. I didn't read them, but a couple of sermons dealing with earth, earthquakes, okay? Because they're, they're talked about in scripture, right? So if you want to look at this stuff, okay? I, my advice is go here. It's called the Internet Archives. It's a free site. It's uh, archive.org, and you can download searchable PDFs, okay? And this is one of the ones that, that I own here. It's called Patriot Preacher, Preachers of the American Revolution, okay? Uh, it's it's fun to look at some of these sermons. Uh, they they would not do well here. Okay, you know Mike is pressed to get done in in thirty minutes. I, I didn't see any thirty minute sermons in this stuff. Okay, I mean often people were walking to get to church. We got to church. Okay, middle of the morning. Okay, They're, they might have some refreshments then church service would, would start, and sometime about lunchtime, we'd take a break, okay? And then there would be some, some 
music maybe and uh, some, you know, some service time afterwards. And, and people are there essentially all day. Back home in time for, for supper. And the first time I ran across that was doing work in the islands. Because okay? you go out to one of the, island, you know, the islands and, and you get invited to church. And I show up there and say, what time is church? And said, well, whenever you get there, okay, after breakfast. And so on the way there, you see people walking. Okay? And, and there are lots of churches on, on most of the islands in the Pacific. And people are walking to go to church. And they get to church. And I remember, you know, because I'm, I'm the guest. I'm probably the only white face in the group. Okay? And I sit at the back, and they come get me. Because okay? I'm the, a guest and up here in front. And service is over, and, and the, you know, the, the band is up there. They've got you know, a little orchestra, a little band. And, and somewhere along the place, it was time for a choir. And people got out of the congregation, went up and sang. And then they go back and sit down. And, and people are kind of scurrying around. I don't want to be obvious. I don't want to stand up and look around. But pretty soon, the kid that had invited me, he's playing the guitar up there. And he comes down and said, it's OK if you go. People are taking a lunch break. And they'll, they'll be here all day. But you can, <laughs> you can go. And, and before it gets dark, People will start walking home. Okay? So the stuff I've read about church in this period of time, very similar. Okay? Didn't have cars to drive there, so you know, it's, it's an all-day deal. Okay? We're going to church. Okay? It's all day. And have lunch. All right. This is an example I picked of the influence and impact the churches and pastors had. And it's, it's the Concord-Lexington issue, OK? So remember, one of the things we looked at said there was 700. Another one, I think it said it was 900. So there's some numbers, a large number here, OK? So the red carts are headed out to Lexington and Concord. And I'd mentioned earlier, this is the only way out of Boston, is this one road. Right? It's either that or get in a boat. So there's a guy by the name of Dr. Warren. He had summoned Paul Revere and, and told him he needed him to go to Concord and warn them and stop in Lexington and warn Samuel Adams and, and John Hancock. Now, it wasn't a sudden deal. I mean, they, they'd been watching, trying to figure out what the Brits were going to do. They had word that the Brits were going to probably march to Concord and Lexington, but watching to see when that's going to happen. So somewhere along the way, Warren, who has, uh, has inside information, he's got contacts in the British Army, okay, that he gets information. And theoretically, that goes to Revere. Okay? He was concerned about his ability to get out of Boston. And some historians say that he went across in a boat. Okay? Many of them say that he, he came down, down this road. I don't know. We know he left Boston. Okay? So he, had already, he or someone had sent a signal to the Sons of Liberty, and they dispatched several writers. Now, this is the one of by land, two of by sea thing from the Old North Church. Okay? Now, whether they really hung lanterns up there is, is debatable. Although there is fairly good evidence that, uh, in, in fact, the names of the two guys who probably took the lanterns up there, okay? Because the Brits were going to go across 
on in, in boats. Okay? But they already had writers out there waiting for the information. And so this is Dr. Joseph Warren. That's the one we just talked about. Okay? He's commissioned as a major general in the Massachusetts militia. Uh, he was killed at Bunker Hill. He had already sent William Dawes, who was a sergeant in the auxiliary company of Massachusetts, to take a back road to Lexington. Now, this is before the, the signal went up. Okay? He, he had sent the stuff, the stuff I read that he had sent William Dawes, who's this guy here. Okay? I'm positive they're going to go. I don't know what time. I don't know whether it's going to be tonight or tomorrow morning. But you need to go and let people know that they're on their way. So he'd already sent Dawes. Okay? Revere rode to the west, and he was captured just outside of Lexington. Then Wentworth Cheswell rode north. Now, who in the world is Wentworth Cheswell? Okay? Well, here he is here. He's a black colonist, black American, uh, born in 1746. He was an American patriot from New Hampshire. He was living in the Boston area. He's the first black elected to office in America. Right? His education was the governor, called the Governor Dormer Academy in Bayfield, Massachusetts. He was a justice of the peace, a yeoman landowner, which means he owned some land, but not a huge amount. Okay? He was elected constable of, of his county in 1768, and it's believed that many of the thousands that arrived and intercepted the British on their way back to Boston was because of his message that he carried. Okay? And many of these groups that showed up were led by a pastor or a deacon or an elder of their church. Okay? These were church-based militias. Because remember, that was the center of activity, was the church. So Adams and Hancock are staying at Pastor Jonas Clark's house in Lexington. Okay? So he's the pastor of the Church of Christ in Lexington, which is currently called the Hancock United Church of Christ. Okay? So Hancock was, was Clark's wife's cousin. So they're, I mean, everybody's got cousins, right? So this is his house, another salt box house. Okay? This is where Hancock and Adams are staying when Revere shows up. So who was Jonas Clark? Well, born in 1730. He was a graduate of Harvard in 1752, the third pastor of the Church of Christ of Lexington. He helped write the resolution for the separation of Massachusetts from Great Britain. There's a pastor doing this, okay? He helped write the Massachusetts Constitution. The alarm was, sound, was sent from his church. Now, it's not, the, it's not the Old North Church, okay? But the alarm went out from there, and then someone in the North Church put the lanterns up. But that was the center, okay? So the Lexington militia, militia was headed by John Parker, a deacon in his church. Yes. No. Well, well, I mean, there were, there's always been, you know, lay preachers out there. But yeah, mo most of these people that, that I've dealt with here have have a theological education. I mean, remember, the six 
colleges that existed in 1750 all were formed for one purpose only, train pastors. So yeah, these are most of these I'm going to talk about were, were educated, and we just uh, we're going to have to quit here in a minute. Okay, so I want to talk about John Parker, and then we'll call it. Today. John Parker, the guy we saw in the <coughs> in the video clip, he was a farmer and a mechanic. He was a soldier in the French and Indian War. That's where he learned his skills. He was at the the siege of Louisbourg, which is in Nova Scotia. And he was at the quest of Quebec. So he was there at the end of the French and Indian War and very active. He was dying of tuberculosis at the time in Lexington. Uh, the statue of the Minuteman, many people say this statue is in honor of, of John Clark. Okay? So we're going to quit there. And we'll pick up with Mayhew next week. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, Harvard, yeah, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, William and Mary's, and one other one. The, the, the six colleges that existed in 1750, all done for one purpose, one purpose only, train pastors.